For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Father God, as we recited in this psalm, one generation praises your works to another and shall declare your power. And I pray that as we study your word together, that your works would be praised and your power would be declared. And Lord, that we could see with new eyes what your kingdom is like, and that you would make us more and more citizens of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, my name is Chris Myers. I'm the associate priest here at All Saints East Dallas. Um, please pray for Jay Wright, our rector. He's uh, under the weather. He's fighting off an upper respiratory infection, so uh, hopefully he'll feel better, and nobody in this family will also get sick. So he's taking his pack and uh, having some well-deserved rest. So please pray for him and Amy and their family. So this week we have another parable of the kingdom or a story of the kingdom. Last week we looked at a similar story, the story of the unrighteous servant or the ungrateful servant. And Jesus introduced that story last week by saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared, and then he told the story. And the story this week before us, Jesus introduces it in similar terms. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like. And in these stories that Jesus gives in these parables that he tells, he wants to give us a glimpse of his kingdom because we have to be shown what his kingdom is like. When his rule and his reign breaks into our lives, into our world, it's so unexpected. It's so different than the world around us, than our culture, that we have to be shown what it's like. And though Jesus uses familiar words or, or images from the world around us, he uses them in such unfamiliar ways. And something unexpected happened in the story last week, and something unexpected happens in the story this week, too. And because the kingdom is not like the world, when we hear these stories, they sometimes challenge us. And I would dare say that sometimes they even irritate us. And I'm giving you permission to be irritated by this story. Because I think that's part of what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to irritate us just a little bit, to get us, get us under the skin, to show us that his ways are not 
our ways, and that his way of thinking is not our way of thinking. One way to think of this is sometimes when we rub our hands up against these stories, we get some splinters. Because the way that Jesus says that the, his world is, it goes such against the grain of the way that we experience the world in our day-to-day lives. We saw that especially in last week's story. Maybe it's not hard for us to accept that God forgives us. Maybe we've heard that all our lives. Or even to accept that God forgives us in a boundless way like the master who forgives this enormous debt, and yet this servant is ungrateful and is unwilling to forgive a debt himself. And Jesus says, as an illustration, that we should forgive without measure, that we are supposed to be boundless in our forgiveness as God is boundless in his forgiveness. So that's the story last week, and in between that story and the story that we have before us, Jesus says some other things that we might find irritating. Some other things that might give us some splinters if we're really paying attention. So leading up to this story, Jesus shows us, first of all, that the kingdom is a place where debt is forgiven and that where those who are forgiven are supposed to forgive boundlessly. He shows us that the kingdom is a place where the children are those who come in first freely and the rich young ruler who follows all the laws to the T can't come in because his heart is captured by greed. In response to all of that, Peter shows his irritation. In the verses right before the story that we have before us tonight, Peter, in response to how Jesus has responded to the rich young ruler, Peter says in Matthew 19, 27, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What are you going to do for us, Jesus? We've given up everything. That's the way the world works. See, Peter is still learning how to think in kingdom terms. He's still learning to see the world with kingdom eyes. And his question, I think, stands in for us, stands in for our question, stands in maybe for our own irritation, stands in for those places where we maybe feel splinters. And what I want you to do tonight as you, as you listen to this story retold, as, a, as I recount what this master of the vineyard has done, Pay attention to those places of irritation. Pay attention to those places in the text, in the story, where maybe it goes against the grain of your own expectations of the way someone should run a business or the way you as a worker should be properly remunerated for your work. Pay attention to those places of irritation, to those splinters. So we have this story before us, Matthew chapter 20, and you can follow along in your bulletin if you'd like. And it begins, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. The story starts out in a way that would be familiar to those who hear this story. There's a guy who needs some work done. He goes and hires some people to do that work. And things go relatively as we would expect over the next few verses. Apparently, there's plenty of work to be done. So throughout the day, the master goes again and again to the town square to hire workers to come. With the first set of workers, he explicitly says, I'll pay you a denarius for a day's work. And then each group after that says, I'll give you what is fair. And then in verse 8, all the drama begins. And what's interesting about what this master does, what this vineyard owner does, is he intentionally creates a dramatic moment. 
he intentionally creates a moment of tension because he tells his foreman to pay the last first. Instead of those who came first and worked the longest, pays those who had been there maybe only an hour. See, these 11th hour workers, uh, you've probably heard that term before, in the 11th hour, maybe you're a procrastinator and the 11th hour is where you thrive. Right? You get things done in the 11th hour. Um, the other way I've heard this said, and there was actually a band called this, these are five o'clock people. They show up for work at five o'clock and there's an hour's work to be done and these other people have been working from daybreak to nightfall. And there's this moment of drama because he tells the foreman to hand out the wages in reverse order. And so those who have been there an hour are paid what those at the end of the line who had been there the longest were expecting to get paid and what they agreed to be paid. And their expectation rises. They think, oh, if he's going to pay them that, he's probably going to pay us even more. And he goes down the line, and everyone is paid exactly the same. And in verse 11, their irritation breaks out. In verse 11, their own splinter with how this master is handling his business affairs breaks out. So verse 10 says, Now when they hire, the hire, those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled, the master of the house. Those great words that are, resound throughout Scripture. God's people are great at grumbling. We deserve better than this. Why are you doing this to us? The people of Israel in the wilderness, master grumblers. And they're a picture of us. We're master grumblers too. This makes me think of my daughters. Usually in the morning, my tiny blonde four-year-old comes and wakes me up, and we go and I make her breakfast, which usually consists of oatmeal. She loves oatmeal. So I make her a bowl of oatmeal. She starts to eat her oatmeal, and then the baby starts to cry. So I go and get the baby, put the baby in the high chair, and then I give the baby a squeezy of baby food. My four-year-old is now not interested in oatmeal, which she explicitly asked for and agreed that this would be the ideal breakfast to have. But upon seeing the squeezy, which is baby food, she says, can I just have one, one squeeze? I just want one squeeze. And then the baby, being a baby, will throw the squeezy on the floor because that's what babies do. And then my daughter will say, Ellie will say, see, she doesn't want it anymore. I can have the rest. Like, no, she just threw it on the floor. And we go with the dance because... She can't stand that her sister is getting something that she thinks that she deserves. And what that illustrates to me is that it's, it's wired into us to think in terms of, of what is fair, what is equality, what is just. And the way that this master is working seems unjust to those who had worked and, and toiled all day. And that's how they put it. These last worked only one hour and then the most telling phrase of all to me of this story, the phrase that I think exposes my own heart and I would imagine exposes our hearts too, you have made them equal to us. You have made them equal to us. And the subtext is they aren't. They're not equal to us. They didn't work as hard. They don't deserve the same that we get. We deserve more. You've made them equal to us. 
And I think in that phrase, there's so much about how we think about our lives and the way our culture thinks about the way things should work. This may be the biggest splinter of all. Because one of the things that we believe in our our culture, one of the great American axioms, is that what sets me apart is my hard work. And if I work hard, then I'll succeed. And what's so difficult about that is that it's a half-truth. Even the book of Proverbs will say the sloth who turns on his bed, he's not going to get anything. It's the guy who gets up early and works hard, right? So even scripture will say to us there's value in hard work. But even in those same Proverbs, we'll see that there are those who are righteous, poor, who toil and work, and they can never get ahead. Their hard work never adds up to a breakthrough. And then there are those, say, people who are on reality television shows, who haven't done anything, and yet have been given the blessings of our culture. Fame, money, recognition, access, power. If you boiled down America to its purest, if you got rid of, rid of all the prejudice and all the racism and all the things that divide us and all the things and the stratification in our culture, if you boiled it down, the American experiment could be boiled down to that we're supposed to be a meritocracy. What does that mean? Those who work hard get ahead. Hard work is the great revealer of value. And in a way, these workers are buying into that way of viewing the world. And we too, often, I myself, buy into that view of the world. But that's not the kingdom. That's not the way that Jesus works when he says the last will be first and the first will be last and that the children are those who are coming into the kingdom. And this rich young ruler is outside at this point, because he can't lay down the thing that so grips his heart. And in verse, verses 13 through 15, the master turns to one of them. Instead of addressing the whole crowd, he focuses attention on one. And he says, friend. He's trying to bridge the gap. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? He goes back to the original deal, the negotiation that they set at the beginning of the day. They agreed to an honest day's wage for an honest day's work. And that's what a denarius was, an honest day's wage for an honest day's work. But then he says, take what belongs to you and go. So this belongs to you, go. That's all you want. You can go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? That's a hard saying. God saying to us, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? With my grace, with my generosity, with my goodness, with my love. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And then this phrase, or do you begrudge my generosity? What a stabbing question. And it gets even worse if you translate it literally. The literal translation here, and this is a footnote in in my Bible and it's in the Greek text, if you translated it literally, it would say, is your eye bad because I am good? 
Is your eye bad because I am good? Are you looking at this as evil because I have done a good thing? Do you begrudge my generosity? Is my eye bad? Is, is your eye bad because I am good? This question came to me a few years ago in, in a different form. Um, I had an experience where this story was driven home to me in, in a profound way. Uh, a few years ago, uh, one of my cousins was killed in a car accident. It was a pretty gruesome car accident. She was drinking at the time, and it just, she was young, she was in her 20s, and uh, she had lived a very difficult life. She'd had a terrible upbringing, but she was, a, she was wild, and she was in and out of um, outpatient places and struggled with depression and addiction and things like that. And when I went to her funeral, my dad actually led the funeral. And he told a story at the funeral, which was the Sunday before that she had died, she had been at my parents' church. And after she died, one of the uh, prayer ministry workers came to my dad and handed him a card. And on that card was my cousin's name. She had prayed at, at the front during prayer ministry to receive Christ. And nobody knew that until after she died. And this prayer worker handed it to my dad and said, I think you know, this should bring you comfort. Here, here's this evidence that in some way, in some form, she was trying to turn her life towards God. And I remember having some splinter thoughts about that, some thoughts of irritation. I had some thoughts like these workers. I had that question of Peter in my heart. What are you going to do for me, God? I've been at this Christian thing my whole life. I serve you at the time. I'm in seminary. I'm in a minister. How is this fair? And I, it, at least I got that honest and boiled it down to what I was really asking. How is this fair? And what I heard was basically a version of this question. It isn't fair. It isn't fair because grace isn't fair. Great, the scandal of grace is that it's not fair. Um, so I felt God saying to me in that moment, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And he was saying to me, you know, your cousin belongs to me now. I'm going to be generous to her as I've been generous to you. And what I realized in that moment is I process it further and further that for me, the realization that I came to is not that there's people who start working in the beginning of the day and then people who work at the end of the day, but that we're all five o'clock people. We're all 11th hour people in one form or another. Some of us just look like we have it more together <laughs> than others. And some of us look like we have it less together than others. I'm going to switch mics. Apparently, I create an electrical field with all of this polyester. So the point is, we're all five o'clock people. We're all those who have been forgiven an enormous and impossible debt. Uh, we're all those who are come as children and not as rich young rulers. Um, we are, as, as a song that I love puts it, the beggars at the foot of God's door. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, all we are is one beggar who said to another beggar, this is where you can find some bread. That's what Jesus is trying to get at by telling this story. That's what he's saying his kingdom is like. And praise God that it's contrary 
to the rest of the world. Praise God that the scandal of grace doesn't work like our economic systems or our visions of fairness or merit. Because if it did, we'd all be lost. So God showed me through this experience with my cousin's death that I had some things in my heart that made me still think in terms of equality and fairness and my vision of justice. And I think God said, is God is saying to you, saying to us what he said to me, which is, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? God's grace belongs to him. God's love belongs to him and he pours it out. And the offer is open for all of us. So maybe, maybe when you read through this story or heard this story, the, the splinter part was not that you identified like I did with the bad guys. Maybe you self-identify with the five o'clock people and you've just spent too much time around people like me, <laughs> you know, and I'm sorry for that. Sometimes we in the church can act like that, right? that you have made them equal to us. We're the righteous ones. We're the ones that are doing the right things. And God is saying, yeah, that stuff matters, but not as much as you think. It doesn't matter as much as the love and generosity and grace that I'm pouring out on you. So as we close, I just invite you to think about, as you heard this story, as you heard me talk through it, what, what irritated you? What stood out to you? What, what were the splinters in the story for you? And as we turn to pray, I just invite you to make that a matter for prayer before you and the Lord. So let us pray together. Lord God, we, we thank you for these stories of the kingdom that help us understand that your ways are not our ways and that the kingdom that you're bringing is so different, so contrary to our mode of being, to our way of thinking. And I pray, Lord, that our eyes would not be bad, but ours would be good. As you asked, is your eye bad because I am good? I pray that you would reverse that for all of us, even now. That, as you said so often throughout the Gospels, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear who you really are, what you're really like, what your grace is really like. And it, Lord, for those of us who identify with the laborers who labored all day, I pray that you would work in our heart not a feeling of envy or jealousy, but a feeling of rejoicing that there are others who can experience what we've experienced in the Lord. And if we identify with the five o'clock people, with the 11th hour people, Lord, that we can know that what you choose to do with what you have is to give, to be gracious, to be loving, to be kind. So be with us now, Lord, and throughout the rest of our worship, remind us of that goodness, of your everlasting compassion and mercy towards us. And we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.